Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Thea can't be back already. She's only been away for about a fortnight. I hear you cry and you cry correctly. She is still off touring her heavy metal haircuts around foreign parts. Joining me is someone from the indie side rather than the metal side of the musical spectrum, arts editor and token northerner Lucy Dallas. Hello. Can I say, in, yes. in immediate defence of Thea's haircut... Uh, yes, which she herself characterised in, in the manner of heavy metal. It wouldn't occur to me in a million years that Ramones, she had a heavy metal haircut. The Ramones, she said. But long for the Ramones. I thought new wave of British heavy metal, sort of Def Leppard. <laughs> she doesn't remind me of Def Leppard in any other way, put Fine. it that way. Uh, we're also, we were going to discuss gardening today, weren't we? We were, and I'm sorry that we can't, but one day, Stig, I will make you talk about Because you are a gardening fan. Oh, I am. I am. But we are talking to Michael Pollan, and he has written exactly. books about gardens and plants and all sorts of wonderful things. Well, let, let, let's get to what we are going to actually talk about rather than what we're not going to talk about. Because there is a gardening connection. Lucy, you've been speaking to Michael Pollan, and his book's called How to Change Your Mind, which deals with the value of psychedelic drugs, often plant-based ones. Yes. Have you ever taken any psychedelic drugs, often plant-based ones? Possibly comment. Is that, is that an <laughs> intrusive, today, is that an intrusive, is that an intrusive question? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you, uh, well, I've never, I've never had magic mushrooms, for example. Okay. Reach for your magic mushrooms and wait for Lucy's interview. We'll also be considering the publishing sensation of James Comey, handsome FBI man turned Trump basher. A former New York prosecutor considers the Comey book a higher loyalty. And it is a year since the tragedy of Grenfell Tower, in which 72 people died in an avoidable blaze. Terry Apter has been looking at the artistic responses to the disaster. The 14th of June 2017 will live on as a day of tragedy and infamy in Great Britain, the day that Grenfell Tower, a block in one of Europe's wealthiest neighbourhoods, was immolated by fire. 
So it's been almost exactly a year since 72 people died in a place where they had the greatest expectation of security and safety, their home. A year in which answers to angry questions have been demanded, a year of dismay and despair, of grieving and politicking. Storytelling is an inevitable and welcome response to tragedy. The worst is not so long as we can say this is the worst, in the words of Edgar in Lear. We want to use words to make sense of otherwise senseless death, and Grenfell has provoked millions of words, and that's just in the LRB, with many more to come. Terry Apter this week has reviewed three books, Poems for Grenfell Tower, Gabby Doherty's Grenfell Hope, and 24 Stories of Hope for Survivors of Grenfell Tower, edited by Cathy Burke. Terry begins the piece by noting that the narrative spread as quick as the fire. The smoking husk of Grenfell Tower trumpeted society's contempt for the poor. A very different story emerged in the aftermath. The outpouring of compassion and support suggested the shared grief of a society both close-knit and diverse. Reality is inevitably more nuanced than any report, even one that seeks to combine more than one perspective. Indeed, it might be hubristic to attempt any overarching narrative, even after a year, especially while a public inquiry is in its infancy. But we can listen to individual voices, poems and tales from those affected. Terry reflects how people have responded to the competing narratives of heroism and neglect, using imaginative breadth, empathy and sensitivity. And while there is anger at safety failures, outrage being the one sure emotional pathway in the turmoil of grief, there is also the triumph of decency, generosity and community over the pain of loss. So, can arts provide a valid response to tragedy? Terry Apter joins us now. Terry, hello. Hello. Let's take the poems first of all, the poems for Grenfell Tower. Can it be levelled against poetry that... Or, or this poetry in particular, that it, yeah. that it seeks to oversimplify the nuance? Well, what we have is a collection of poems. So as a collection, no. Uh, you do have, I think the poems are the most raw. You get the most raw voices in the poems. And in fact, the uh, first poem by the editor, Rip Buckley, he says that in years to come, we're going to tell children how their ancestors were torched for greed. But you also have the voice of the firefighter who is haunted and broken by memories of people he was unable to save. And if you think, you know, in poetry like this, in books like this, you are not taking it out of context. You're putting it into context. You're bringing recent raw experience to bear on how you read it. And also you hope that in reading it, that will change how you're responding to the world around you. But you can imagine that voice of the firefighter He may have been one of them who said, stay put, because that was the best advice that he had at the time, and how that would have haunted him as well. It seems to me that poetry is a very good vehicle as well for expressing emotion. I mean, it's emotion recollected, whether it's whether it's raw, you know, or in tranquility. But and in the sense that I'm sure people want to express that in the sense that you can't it's much more difficult to do that in a newspaper report or a sort of, you know, or a history or, or or a piece to camera. I mean, poetry is very much a vehicle for that kind of thing, or it can be, can't it? Well, it it certainly is here. You get um, imagined voices of the bereft father looking at an empty chair where his daughter would have sit. 
everything in the future is just a blank, just a series of unanswerable questions as to what she might have been. You know, sometimes when you hear the voices of the survivors, you get a great deal, but you do get something, um, you know, you can hold on to, you can understand. A grief, I guess, in some ways you can cherish. You get that in the poems. Tell us about Gabby Doherty's book, Grenfell Hope, because that's a slightly different approach, isn't it? It's a very different approach. She is more a witness than a sufferer. She lived immediately opposite the tower. Um, Her husband was the first clergy on the scene. She was dealing with um, getting her children to school, dealing with her um, younger son's nightmares and anxiety. And so it was, um, you know, a pretty difficult time for her just in practical terms. You know, she was very familiar with the residents' uh, frustration with the management and with the council, with how slow they might have been to get regular maintenance done. But she also charts the um, enormous generosity and community spirit of this very diverse community, which she sees as part of its richness. And so she'll tell, she tells the story of a homeless man who, ha- who felt, oh, I have a coat. I will give my coat to someone who needs it because they'll need it more than I do. You know, we saw, I think, on television how many uh, donations there were in terms of clothes, in terms of food. It was very difficult for the council officials to manage this. It was chaotic, and they didn't do it, in her view, in the best possible way, in the most efficient way. They didn't keep track of what resources they were given and where they were needed. When people from the neighborhood came and said, look, I, um, I'm very happy to house people who are now homeless. Uh, please let them come to me. Um, the council didn't say, okay, let me take note of your name. Let me vet you. Let me send someone to see whether this accommodation would be suitable. It was a blanket response. We can't put vulnerable people in possibly unsafe situations, so we'll put them all on mattresses on a floor in a sports hall. Do you think it's important to get this type of testimony? Because one argument might be, well, there's a public inquiry that's going to look into all of this stuff in detail to produce a verdict. Is it important, though, to hear some of these voices from the community even while that's going on, do you think? Well, I think what's so impressive about Doherty's memoir is that she puts it all together. You see it unraveling, you see it un- or unfolding. And, um, at, you know, at the same time as you see the, the, the chaos and the inefficiency, um, you also see the warmth um, and the generosity. And um, she has great faith in the people of Grenville. She doesn't have no faith in the council officials. I mean, she does think that they were trying to do their best. She speaks very much from the perspective of a highly religious person, and not everyone would share that, but I don't think anyone would be put off by it either, um, because she is just portraying a very direct, warm, and believable view of um, humanity and a community under stress and responding to stress in a very positive way generally might not be very efficient, but it's very positive because it 
makes them very attentive to what other people need and far more and 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 very responsive. I think it's a remarkable witness statement at this time and and very different from what an inquiry would look at. Uh, Just finally then, the 24 stories of hope for survivors of the Grenfell Tower fire, they're not actually all about or even mostly about Grenfell, are they? How 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 does that work? Well, there, it's called 24 Stories of Hope for the Victims of Grenville Tower, uh, for the survivors of Grenville Tower fire. And I think that is a step beyond the trauma. They're looking for routes to recovery. They're looking of you know, ways of resilience. And um, so they're showing communities, their stories about bias, about exclusion, but often the bias melts away. So there's this wonderful um, story by Mira Sial, The Dish of the Dancing Cows, where two, mem- uh, two neighbors are squabbling over um, whose responsibility it is to catch the leaks in an overhanging broken gutter that uh, bridges both of their doors. And one family is a mixed Hindu and Muslim, and the other is an elderly white woman. And the Hindu and Muslim family think that they're way, way beyond racism, but they're sure that the white elderly woman is a racist. And the way that out of chance they get into escalating generosity and revelation of misunderstanding is just a delight. And there are also stories that show um, old and young coming together, that the, the old uh, breaking down, they're having their suspicion of the young being broken down. This is in Mike Gale's um, The Good Sandy Man. Um, that's a lovely story. But it's also about how we are uh, biased, creative creatures. We're always... Um, finding ways or reasons to exclude someone. So Nina Stibbe talks about how her mother was allowed to help at some village fate, but she wasn't allowed to join the mother's union because um, she was divorced. Or a homeless man who wants to use one of these surplus sleeping bags um, because so many were donated to Grenville victims. Um, and so he ho- hopes to get one for himself. But, you know, the officials say, oh, no, no, you are not a Grenville victim, so you can't have one. So he's, he's not a victim of escalating generosity. No. <laughs> Can I? Um, that's nearly all we've got time for, I'm afraid, Terry. But we did want to ask about whether you think these books are, even though they are poems and stories and yes. uh, memoirs, whether they are political and whether should whether creative writing should be political in these circumstances? I think they're political, not because they set out to be political, other than a few of the poems, but because um, they will influence the way we think about this, and that will influence how um, this disaster has been politicised. And that's a valid thing, you think, for art to do. I suppose what this boils down to is, 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 it, a, is, is it useful for art to politicise itself in this way? I think art is always useful because I think, uh, you know, we're always making judgments. We make judgments in art. We make judgments in, um, in politics. And one way of making 
us be better judgment, and we're always doing judgment. One way of making us do this better is by reading, by taking different perspectives, by pressing a pause button and saying, let's think about this more clearly, more deeply. Um, let's extend our empathy. So I think um, art is always political. That's a good way to leave it. Thank you very much indeed, Terry Apter. It's interesting that the idea of reading is an extension of empathy. I wonder how many people will read these stories. I don't know. I mean, it can't be. It's it can't be a bad thing, can it? An extension of empathy. No, it can't. I'm just, just struck by you know poetry for Grenfell Tower. Yeah, it just. I mean, what you don't want it to be is to be sort of ghettoized and not experienced by many people. I wonder whether whether we actually now. Culturally... You mean people think that's that's not for me? But they might because it because it might be a way in. Or, they, or somebody might buy it because they would think that the money would go to a good cause and yeah. then actually be... Because I do think that you are possibly more likely to be, I want to say hit, that's slightly the wrong word, but you know what I mean, struck yeah. by something, by one line or one... Do you think art should be political? Or something? I think it's unavoidable. I think I think it's political with a small p. But you might as well embrace it. I just think how... I mean, I think it's very difficult for art to be completely apolitical. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So, Yeah. I think it's going to happen. And you should and we should say that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In two years of extraordinary moments scarcely conceivable in any other era, the Trump presidency threw up the prospect of the head of the FBI, James Comey, being fired for a lack of loyalty to a president his agency was investigating. 
Comey, a Republican, has not, of course, gone quietly into the night, but published a book, A Higher Loyalty, in which he likens Donald Trump to the head of the mafia. Not an idle analogy, given that Comey spent part of his career prosecuting such figures. Comey, of course, came first to public attention, by the way. He handled the Clinton emails in the run-up to the election. He decided to make public a reopening of the investigation into whether Hillary had handled classified material on a private email account, a reopening that quickly went nowhere, but was weaponized by the Trump team. He's thus gone from zero to hero in the minds of Democrats and liberals in a matter of a little more than a year. David Potofsky, lawyer and former New York prosecutor whose professional paths have crossed with Comey, has reviewed the book this week and joins us on the line to tell us more. David, welcome. Thanks for having me, Stig. What do you remember about Comey, the prosecutor, when you when you came across him? What sort of guy was he? I'm a little bit younger than him, so by the time we crossed paths, he was no longer investigating and trying cases. He was in senior positions in the Department of Justice. First, he was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, running the biggest U.S. attorney's office in the country. And then years later, he was the deputy attorney general, which is the second highest position in the Department of Justice. Uh, that's a Washington-based job. And what sort of um, man, what, what was his reputation, I suppose? Well, he was he, he had a great reputation, was an impressive guy, very smart, very charismatic, um, very committed to the criminal justice mission. Um, but he was also very charming. He had a great sense of humor. Uh, and for a highly successful lawyer, he had a bit of the common man's touch. And I can also confirm that he is very tall. He is very tall. He's kind of hand- people think he's handsome. Lucy looked askance at me when I said earlier he was handsome. But people do think he's well, handsome. I, I'm not saying he isn't. I just was surprised that you uh, made people, a point of saying it. I haven't, I haven't tracked that as much. Really? Okay. Well, it's perhaps not your area of expertise, David. No. Um, what sort of, how did that translate to the FBI? What sort of FBI? Because so, basically, he wouldn't have come to that many people's attentions as a law figure until the Clinton emails, would he? What sort of FBI director was he before that? Well, first of all, from reading the book, it it gives you the clear impression that the FBI is a gigantic organization. It is a huge administrator's job, Um, and he seems to have taken that very seriously. Some of his focuses seem to be around diversity. He definitely looked to make the group of agents more diverse, and he also looked to sensitize those those agents to race-related issues in the way that um, he carried out the job. And uh, he certainly believes that he was well-liked and respected. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, law enforcement people like other people who seem committed to law enforcement, there have been allegations that he was not popular and had sort of lost control of the group, but that would be surprising to me. But he's a bit of a lib- for, for a Republican, he was a bit of a liberal then, is what you're saying. You know, he's a centrist. He's a, he's a character that doesn't exist anymore. Um, someone who has uh, certainly conservative views, but not reflexive views on either side and is willing to sort of look at the facts and circumstances in any particular case and see which way it goes. So in, in, in light of all that context, are you surprised how his relationship with Trump existed in office and, and then how it ended? Is it, was that inevitable, do you think? Trump is obviously an unconventional president, and he dealt with Comey in an unconventional way. I don't think it's any more surprising the way he dealt with the FBI director than the fact that within the last 12 hours, the president met with the head of North Korea. There's all sorts of surprising stuff we're seeing with this president. So it certainly is out of character with the way other presidents have handled the FBI director. 
but not particularly surprising in the larger context of how President Trump has approached the job. But there's a rule of law issue here, isn't there, that, that ultimately it's about the division of power between the president and the law enforcement agency, which in terms of the FBI must have some rights of authority over the president, even though the president is in titular fashion the head of, of the law enforcement system more generally. That does raise questions about who has precedence over whom. Right. I mean, there's always, I guess, been a tension that Everyone seems to have recognized in the past that law enforcement needs to be independent of politics for a whole host of reasons. That being said, the FBI director reports to the um, secret, uh, the attorney general who reports to and is chosen by the president. So the, the job exists in a political administration structure, but is supposed to be independent of politics. But there are no rules that make it independent of politics. It was just treated that way. I was interested in, in when you're talking about his book, that, that he highlights um, the specific failures of what, of, of what he saw as of Jeff Sessions, who was then the Attorney General. And effectively, you have Comey telling Jeff Sessions how to do his job, or rather um, disagreeing with him when he thinks he's not doing it properly, when... Um, when President Trump wants to speak to to Comey on his own, and yes, he feels right. that he should have been defended. Yeah, he very much feels as though um, the, the FBI needs to exist outside of political influence, shielded from it, and that the job of the attorney general is to shield the FBI from that kind of interference. Um, that it's, it was the job of the attorney general to explain to the president that he can't be involved in direct communications about with the FBI director, and and that must that be when, that must be right, mustn't it? That I mean, from a purely ethical moral point of view, that that must be correct, mustn't it? That the president shouldn't be influencing the direct operation of law enforcement. Uh, certainly, I mean, I think if it was influencing it in terms of general priorities. I'd like the FBI to work more on street crime or business crime or certain types of things, um, policy-related issues. I think that would be fine. But, yes, certainly getting involved in particular investigations and trying to manage them to a particular outcome based on political imperatives is a line that no one would dream of crossing. Well, one person would dream of crossing. (laughs) Well, allegedly. I mean, there's two sides to the story. But, but, and it's but, never really been tested um, in any particular court. That may happen in the future. Do you think it's preferable, just theoretically, that in in this country, in Britain, the the law enforcement system and then the judicial system really are removed from the influence of politics entirely? We have an independent judiciary, uh, and therefore it's not really possible for a political. I mean, I'm sure it happens in terms of nudges and winks and all that, but but structurally, it's not really possible because you have a uh, a police force, a, a, a crown prosecution service, and then judges, which aren't that malleable by politics. Do you, do you think the American this is this has revealed tensions or flaws in the American system? Well, I think structurally we have the same thing. We have an independent judiciary at the federal system. They all have life tenure, yeah. which should protect them from being terminated or fired or or feeling concern about that based on the way they decide cases. Um, we have those structures in place. Some of those guardrails are being tested, yeah. but the guardrails do exist here. It seems to me that generally with Trump, and we saw this with Kim Jong-un as, as well, is that 
the way that politics has always hitherto been been processed is people kind of having respect for rules, both written and unwritten. And what we see with Trump generally in all sorts of areas is what happens if someone isn't conventional and doesn't even recognise the value of conventions. That seems to be the test that, that America is experiencing and will experience throughout this administration. Yeah, very much. Um, and I think some people look at that with great concern and other people in the country look at that with great excitement that um, there were norms that were entrenching interests that deserve to be upset. It's an interesting experiment, if nothing else. Um, let's go back to, to what got Trump elected, the Hillary emails. Um, so he um, explained to us, how do you think he handled the situation of really the reopening of the investigation? He, he The investigation more or less closed. Tell me if I'm, I get this wrong, David, but he, more or less closed. Then other material comes available due to a separate investigation into Anthony Weiner. And he has the opportunity, Comey, to say nothing and just let the process go through and see if they led anywhere or to pr- announce very, very quickly there is some more evidence and we're looking at it again, which he knew would then be used by the Trump uh, camp to say Hillary was crooked. Yeah, I think even he has conceded that he made a miscalculation, Comey. He was faced less than two weeks before the election with this issue of these additional emails, which may or may not have been relevant. And so he was confronted with a choice between the the chance that there might be something found in those emails that was relevant to the investigation which proved out to not be which proved to not be true versus the almost certainty that the mere act of announcing the reopening of the investigation could affect the outcome of the election and he has said less in the book than i think on the tours that he's done after the book that his judgment was influenced or at least he's open-minded to the possibility that it was influenced by everyone's assumption that clinton was going to win And so he didn't see a great risk in announcing the reopening of the investigation because the polls made it look like there was such a gulf in the election that even harming Clinton's chances a little bit in those last two weeks wouldn't change the outcome of the election. Um, And that just proved to be uh, one of history's great miscalculations. But what should he have done, uh, in your view, as a a lawyer, David, that this information... Could you make a case that he should he could have kept his mouth shut and still been following due process or do you think he was he was right if politically naive but was right on the structural point that he had to reveal this information had come to him well it's much more common that investigators don't comment on investigations while they're ongoing because of precisely this kind of problem you don't want to create expectations Um, and drive the conversation in a certain direction only to then have to take things back. So it would have been much more consistent with department policy to not comment at all. Uh, I think Comey understands that, thought that extraordinary circumstances may be called for a different kind of response, but it seems he would have been much better served by hewing to the much more conservative approach that law enforcement usually takes in cases like this. Do you think um, by writing this book, is he what's he trying to do? Is he trying to clear his name or are you trying to put his side of things or um, is he trying to attack the president? What do you think? Well, I think he's doing a bunch of things. First of all, the, the, the topics um, remain an issue of public debate and he has a side and he wants to get his side out. 
so that people understand what he believes is what transpired. He also was out of a job. I mean, I think it's fairly clear that after he got fired, writing this book was what he did with his time. And presumably Um, made some money out of it, because this will have sold sold pretty well out of thought. And then also he's put a lot of thought into, and the book really is framed as... um, observations about ethical leadership illustrated by specific experiences that he's had. So he's also trying to say something about norms. He's trying to say something about ethical leadership and why it's practically necessary, why it's ethically necessary, and why, in his view, he thinks non-ethical leadership is sort of doomed to failure. I think in his view... Uh, Trump is an example of non-ethical leadership, and he just believes that it will fail in the long run. Is it a good read, David? I mean, because at one level, that sounds like that's an element of point scoring. It sounds like a manifesto for a career doing motivational business gurus type uh, chats, which I suspect are hugely remunerative in America and elsewhere. Do you, did you read it with pleasure? Is it is it, a, is, it, is, it is, is he a lively writer? Yeah, I don't want to graded on too much of a curve, but particularly for a lawyer, I thought he was a terrific writer. And in yeah, fact, in that's the quite, that's, that's quite a clarification. Publish, yeah. I, made, I made a point of, of quoting a particularly almost lyrical passage from the book to give readers a sense of his writing style. And I thought it was good. I, it's very clear. Um, these are complicated matters that he has to describe. He does a very efficient job of explaining to the reader what the issue is, what the arguments were on both sides. I think for something that gets into pretty complicated questions of law enforcement and national security, he does a very good job of explaining it to the reader. And just finally, Mystic David, where do you think Comey and Trump, do their fates intertwine again in in the future, do you think? Or is this all she wrote? Trump said his piece, Comey said his, and, and they will pass by each other now. Well, I think the expectation is that their paths may well cross because as part of the ongoing uh, special prosecutor investigation that Robert Mueller, uh, Comey's press, uh, predecessor as FBI director, is carrying out into Russian interference, that has extended into questions of obstruction of that investigation. And the termination of Comey by Trump is obviously part of that obstruction investigation. And if there's ever a case made there, Comey will be government witness number one. And he knows his way around the courtroom. He is a very experienced lawyer and law enforcement uh, professional. He knows how courtrooms operate. We've already seen a dry run when he testified in front of Congress and laid out most of the relevant facts that are in the book. And I think the general view was that he was a very compelling witness. Watch this space. David Potovsky, thank you very much indeed. Thank you both. Thank you. I do think the idea of the unconventional aspect of Donald Trump, and this is true a little bit in this country as well, you're just starting to see some of the, the very, a lot of what goes on in, I think, the civilised world is based on unwritten rules or respect for a certain processes. Especially in Britain, I think. Uh, yeah, and, but, yeah. And, and I think what is fascinating, to take all emotion out of it, what happens when someone says, well, hang on a second, I don't need to run that by that person, or I don't need to be polite to this group of people, or, mm. or I don't need, you know, uh, if you I just think, abandon all conventions. But, but if it was, it's not, it's, I think if it was done for a reason and rationally, 
I think yeah. if it was if it, if you say, well, this is uh, obstructing my path to being able to do this. So this might be a, a tradition or a norm, but it's unnecessary. So I'm not going to do it. If if you sit down and think about it, I, I you know you can see that some people might object, but at least there is a rationale behind yeah. it. With President Trump, it doesn't. It, it honestly doesn't look as though there is. It just looks like he doesn't want to because he doesn't have to. Why should he? He's a billionaire. Can't be who's bothered. You, yeah. He can do what he wants. Yeah. Watch this. That's and, what it looks like. And I that's don't what, know. And that's why cynicism about the Kim Jong Un thing is so rife. It seems to me you put two. Yeah narcissists in a room together with very little planning and they come out with a statement which has very little actual meaning what are we expecting them well to do if with this? if it was hot air six months ago all the name calling why is this not hot air i mean i hope it isn't but no. why isn't it and and how 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 come they've done 360 degree pirouette suddenly yeah and 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 you know as we were saying earlier where, where's all the um human rights concerns Conveniently forgotten. Yeah, no one cares. No one cares about Kim Jong Un, the the despot. It's lovely. Well, we're going to look back on the era of Trump. It's never going to be boring, is it? Mm, no. <laughs> I was trying to put a positive spin on this. It's such a gloomy podcast all the time, isn't it? I was just thinking, at least it'll be interesting. And you're, like, yes, it'll be interesting. Yes, it'll be interesting. <laughs> Michael Pollan is Professor of the Practice of Nonfiction at Harvard University and Professor of Journalism at Berkeley School of Journalism and the author of many books on plants, gardens, food and cooking. You may remember his wonderful clear advice from 2007 in response to the complex, ethical and troubled question, what should we eat? Eat food? Not too much. Mostly plants. If only we had all listened. He now turns his attention to what some plants and chemicals can do to our minds in his new book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. In this extract from a longer interview available on our feed, we hear about his own experiences. You know, it's the way I do journalism. I, I like to immerse myself in the story. Mm-hmm. When I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a cow. You know, this is the kind of thing I do. <laughs> I mean, because you get a perspective you can't get any other way. Yeah. And I, but it was also because I was interviewing so many volunteers and patients, and they had had such extraordinary experiences of transformation, of mm. spiritual insight. I'd never had a spiritual insight, I don't think. And um, that I got intensely curious about what it was like. And, uh, and I got a little jealous of the people I was interviewing, that they were having these big experiences. And I was, you know, approaching 60 and kind of getting curious about, you know, thinking about death and thinking about, a spiritual experience. And so it became more of a personal quest. And so for part of the book, I, I go underground, I find my own therapists, uh, mm-hmm. all of whom are working illegally. And, you know, we're incredibly generous in cooperating with a journalist in this process. Um, and, uh, and had a series of guided um, psychedelic journeys where I tried to mimic as much as I could what was going on in the in the university trials in terms of, you know, the preparation and the, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and the and dosage the set, and, and the setting. Yeah, and the set, and a, lot a lot of attention, attention to, to set and setting and yeah. setting an intention, which is also something that people are encouraged to do. Yeah. And I did, uh, I had an experience with LSD, two experiences with psilocybin, one guided, one not. A um, couple ayahuasca circles. Mm-hmm. This is an Amazonian drug. It's a tea made from two plants. Uh, one contains DMT. 
and a very obscure psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT, which is the smoked venom of the Sonoran desert toad. I have to say that one does <coughs> not sound reading your. It doesn't sound nice doing it, and your it account wasn't nice. sounds it was like terrifying. it was horrendous. It was terrifying. I was. I thought I was dying. I thought it would never end. Um, the best thing about it was it only lasted twenty minutes, although it felt like an eternity. Right. Um, so yeah, it's they're not. It's not all sweetness and light. I mean, no. these can be very difficult experiences, even in some of the ones I would regard as very positive. There were episodes of confronting death and people who died in my life and and um, my own mortality. Um, you know, there's there's you pass through dark passages and. Um, but there were also moments of incredible, um, uh, you know, ecstatic emotions too, and uh, it's quite a roller coaster. But the most significant thing I think for me was in my second experience on psilocybin, where I felt very safe and I was on a very high dose, and I was with someone I really trusted, a woman I really trusted, that I experienced the utter dissolution of my ego, and that was something I had never experienced before, and it was uh, transformative um, because. Mm-hmm. You know, we identify with our egos. We assume that chattering voice in our head is us. And um, to see it um, evaporate, I mean, so, in my case, it yeah. turned into a sheaf of little papers. That, mm-hmm. um, but that I, this other I that suddenly manifested, felt was fine with, felt no desire to pile back together. Yeah, I was... Um, I'd acquired this incredibly disinterested, objective perspective on myself. And... Then um, that was okay. It was okay. It was more yeah. than okay. It was yeah. liberating. And I realized, well, there's another ground on which to stand in life besides mm-hmm. this ego ground where most of us stand. So your your doors of perception were opened a bit. They were. They were. And I don't know what this other consciousness was. I think it's the consciousness people achieve in, you know, very experienced meditators and mm. Buddhists. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it's a transcendence uh-huh. of the self yeah. that puts you in a space of this kind of calm awareness and um, in which whatever is happening, whatever is going through your mind, you just let go. And I think it's that experience that really helped the people who were dying to inhabit that kind of consciousness, even for a period of time where everything is okay. That was Michael Pollan talking to Lucy about his new book, How to Change Your Mind. You can hear the full mind-expanding interview on our podcast feed. Lucy, I'm not going to ask you whether you've ever... You've already asked me. Oh, yeah. You keep, you're constantly can I ask, asking me. Can I ask me. again? No, no, of course not. No? You can ask. Okay. <laughs> well, no, you have already. Yeah, and you refuse... The and thing you, that's you, interesting you, you about <laughs> Michael Pollan's book is that there are whole sections of it we didn't get onto. My fault, because I asked him a huge question to begin with. I wanted to ask him about the mushroom culture as well. Magic mushrooms? Yes, but there's a whole culture of mushrooms, which of which you know the magic mushrooms are a small set. There are people who, who uh, interpret the world... Uh, by mushrooms. There is a theory that we uh, acquired language, a theory called the stoned ape theory, which is that the, the people before Homo sapiens ate the magic mushrooms and their minds were expanded. Oh, like a sort of Prometheus moment almost. Sort of. And that, and, the, and, and they got, they had kind of synesthetic experiences which mm. led them to develop language because you're putting a sort of abstract concept, mapping it onto a word. I mean, it's there's no... There's not. There's not much. You should have totally. You should have totally asked him about that. I, I really should. I meant to. I didn't yeah. have time. It's the, too interesting. It's sto- literally the, too interesting. The stoned ape theory. Yeah, theory. that's just one of the things. I mean, there, there's just. It's it's a fascinating book. I'm slightly scared of uh, psychedelic drugs. I, I, well, I think I, that's probably. I find the yeah, idea of healthy being, respect. Yeah, I feel the idea of being out of control. I'm not very tempted by magic mushrooms because I think the idea of taking something that will send me. Mm. 
well, there's an out of my mind. There's another interesting, I think, well, people might say that you were still in your mind, as it were, but I, I take your point. But an interesting thing about, the, about when he, uh, another thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about is that they find the same kind of state, mental state, when they're mapping your brain um, on people who do a lot of meditation. He, does, he mentions this at one point. Um, and also uh, in one of the exercises, he does a breathing exercise. I mean, quite difficult, but a, but a breathing exercise anyone can do. And that induces a trance-like state. So it's not all about taking things that, you know, make you lose your mind. There's, there are all sorts of ways to get there. And it sounds like you totally you bought his thesis. Well, I don't. it's not really that he has a thesis. He's just saying, look at these, look at this interesting history, look at the evidence, the therapeutic evidence of what they can do yeah. at the moment looks extraordinary. But as he says, very much so. It's very responsible journalism. He says that it has to be tested, controlled, Who's to say it's even in... You know, I, I always think the great argument is it's not... Who, People want to get high. What's immoral about that intrinsically? Well, that's a big old question, isn't it? We'll talk about that some other time, Lucy. Okay. And you can maybe list the things that you have or haven't done in your long yeah. in your long drug-taking life. That'll be right, Stig. I'll definitely do that. <laughs> that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thanks go to David Potovsky, Terry Apter and Michael Pollan and to our friend Lucy Dallas. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. Google TLS subscriptions and get the best deal out there. This week, we look at the women of the mafia and ask why bother going to university. Magic mushrooms could be an answer to that question also. I, I don't see how, but... Okay. <laughs> Just, 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 just checking. Next week, we're going to be going World Cup mad. Not really, but we do have a special edition on Russia and its dubious relationship with truth, reality and power. Come back for that. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.